MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, January 27th, 2023. Today, five officers are indicted on felony murder and kidnapping charges in the death of Tyree Nichols. The Department of Justice has seized the website of a notorious transnational ransomware organization. The Trump White House aide Ken Cuccinelli has been spotted outside the Jack Smith grand jury. Bill Barr pressed Durham to find flaws in the Russia investigation. And the National Archives asked former presidents and vice presidents to search their properties for classified documents. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hi, everyone. Uh, So I know Dana was supposed to be here today, but I had to record early today. And Dana is with her madre. So Dana will be back with us on Monday, and I apologize for her being out. She loves you and she misses you. Also, I do have a special guest, though. Today, I'm going to be talking with former federal and state prosecutor and author of Hatchet Man and the new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Ellie Honig will join me later in the show. And in that vein, in the Bill Barr vein, I'm going to do a deep dive into the latest New York Times reporting from Charlie Savage, Adam Goldman, and Katie Benner about Barr and the Durham probe. And y'all, it is exactly what we thought and worse. But we do have a lot of other news to get to this Friday. So I I think I'm going to save the good news until Monday when Dana is back so that we can read it together. But I wanted to get that out there. I wanted to get the information to you. And I wanted to talk to Ellie today. And we also have a lot of other news to get to. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. First up, five officers have been charged in the murder of Tyree Nichols. This district attorney Mulroy in Memphis has announced at a press conference that the grand jury has charged the five officers with second degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct and official oppression. They will release the body cam footage today, Friday, after 6 p.m. Now, when asked whether they thought it was a good idea to release the footage on a Friday night, given the likelihood of protests, the authorities and law enforcement said that the footage is so bad, it is so egregious, that it doesn't matter what day or time it's released. All five officers are in custody. They'll all face the same charges that I just read to you as returned by a grand jury. Department of Justice is doing a civil rights investigation as well. Speaking of Department of Justice, the uh, DOJ, the FBI and international law enforcement partners mounted a major cyber crackdown against the notorious Russia linked ransomware gang, The Hive, on Thursday, and they seized its website and dismantled much of its digital infrastructure. Quote, the Federal Bureau of Investigation seized this site as part of a coordinated law enforcement action taken against Hive ransomware. And that is a note on Hive's leak site, shown in English and Russian. Now, Hive ransomware actors have victimized over 1,300 companies worldwide and are believed to have received approximately $100 million in ransom payments, according to information previously released by the FBI, authorities said. Last night, quote, the Justice Department dismantled an international ransomware network responsible for extorting and attempting to extort hundreds of millions of dollars from victims in the United States and around the world. That was Merrick Garland. And they were able to prevent $130 million in ransom payments being made by stealing the Hive's keystrokes. It's it's very cool. It was very aggressive cyber attack on the Hive. So well done to the Department of Justice. Also, Ken Cuccinelli, former DHS guy. He was seen testifying before Jack Smith's federal grand jury in D.C. I will discuss that and what Ken Cuccinelli might be telling the grand jury. And it's a lot. We're going to talk about that with Andy McCabe on Sunday's episode of Jack. So listen and subscribe to Jack wherever you get your podcasts. And yesterday, we said that the National Archives was weighing, asking former VPs and presidents, 
to search their properties for classified documents. And today we got the confirmation from The Washington Post. The National Archives sent a letter to representatives of living former presidents and vice presidents Thursday, asking them to review their personal records to verify that no classified materials are outstanding. That's according to a person familiar with the correspondence who spoke on the condition of anonymity. Also, Good news. The U.S. economy grew by 2.1% in 2022. That's a six months of solid growth, despite, quote, widespread concern, unquote, that the country might be on the brink of recession. So mm, widespread concern, widespread by the media, making shit up. Maybe stop saying there's a looming recession. Also, Biden's approval rating remains high, despite the media trying to make the Biden classified documents a thing. Stop trying to make the Biden documents happen. It's not going to happen. Okay? It's not. We found out yesterday that the two documents found in the storage shed near Mar-a-Lago are not being used in the criminal probe. And I said they wouldn't because Trump likely had no idea they were there. The same goes for the Pence documents, the Biden documents. Unless there's some weird miracle, there's some sort of a provable crime that it was Biden himself that stole those documents and he's known exactly where they were the whole time. Not going to happen, probably, uh, and probably didn't happen at all. So anyway, that is the news. But now I want to get to this bombshell report that just came out today. This Thursday, I should say. This is from Savage, Benner and Goldman at The New York Times. Just going to quote here, egged on by Trump, Attorney General Barr set out in 2019 to dig into their shared theory that the Russia investigation likely stemmed from a conspiracy by intelligence or law enforcement agencies. To lead the inquiry, Barr appointed John Durham and later granted him special counsel status to carry on after Trump left office. But after almost four years, far longer than the Russia investigation itself, Durham's work is coming to an end without uncovering anything like the deep state plot suspected by Bill Barr and Trump. Moreover, a months long review by The New York Times found that the main thrust of the Durham inquiry was marked by some of the very same flaws, including a strained justification for opening it and its role in fueling partisan conspiracy theories that would never be charged in court that Trump allies claim characterized the Russia investigation. So everything They say the Russia investigation was the Barr and Durham investigation is. Interviews by The Times with more than a dozen current former federal officials and former officials have revealed an array of previously unreported episodes that show how the Durham inquiry became roiled by internal dissent and ethics disputes as it went unsuccessfully down one path after another, even as Trump and Barr promoted a misleading narrative of its progress. Huh. Misleading narrative of its progress. Sounds familiar. For example, Barr and Durham never disclosed that their inquiry expanded in 2019 based on a tip from Italian officials that included a criminal investigation into suspicious financial dealings with Donald Trump. The specifics of the tip and how they handled the investigations remain unclear, but Durham brought no charges. Durham used Russian intelligence memos suspected by other U.S. officials for containing disinformation to gain access to emails of George Soros, who was a favorite target of the American right and Russian state media. Durham used grand jury powers to keep pursuing the emails even after a judge twice rejected his request for access. The emails yielded no evidence that Durham has cited in any case he pursued. Next up, there were deeper internal fractures on the Durham team than previously known. The publicly unexplained resignation of his number two longtime aide, Nora Danahy, was the culmination of actually a series of disputes between them over prosecutorial ethics. A year later, two more prosecutors strongly objected to plans to indict Sussman, Hillary Clinton's lawyer, based on evidence they warned was too flimsy. And one left the team in protest of Durham's decision to proceed anyway. Sussman was acquitted. Now, as Durham works on his final report, the interviews by The Times provide new details of how he and Barr sought to recast the scrutiny of the 2016 Trump campaign's myriad of murky links to Russia as unjustified and itself a crime. Now, Barr and Durham and Ms. Danahy declined to comment for this story. The current and former officials who discussed the investigation all spoke on the condition of anonymity. A month after Barr was confirmed as attorney general in February 2019, Mueller ended his Russia investigation. Did he or did Barr? 
and turned in his report without charging Trump associates with engaging in criminal conspiracy with Moscow over its interference in the election. Trump would repeatedly portray the Mueller report as having found no collusion. The reality is more complex. In fact, the report detailed numerous links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign and established both how Moscow worked to help Mr. Trump win and how his campaign expected to benefit. That spring, Barr assigned Durham to scour the oranges of the Russia investigation for wrongdoing, telling Fox News he wanted to know if officials abused their power and put their thumb on the scale in deciding to pursue the Russia investigation. A lot of the answers have been inadequate, and some of the explanations I've gotten don't hang together, he added, lying. While attorneys general overseeing politically sensitive inquiries tend to keep their distance from the investigators, Durham and Barr hung out all the time often weekly, to consult about the day-to-day work. They also sometimes dined and sipped scotch together. The two share a worldview. They are both Catholic conservatives and Republicans, born two months apart in 1950. As a career federal prosecutor, Durham already revered the office of attorney general, and he was drawn in to Mr. Barr's personal orbit. And after that, Durham came to embrace that particular attorney general's intense feelings about the Russia investigation. He was smitten. In May 2019, soon after giving Mr. Durham his assignment, Barr summoned the head of the NSA, Paul Nakasone, to his office. In front of several aides, Barr demanded the NSA cooperate with the Durham probe. Referring to the CIA and British spies, Mr. Barr also said he suspected the NSA's quote-unquote friends had helped instigate the Russia investigation by targeting Trump. Aides briefed on that meeting told the New York Times that. And repeating a sexual vulgarity, he warned that if NSA wronged him, he would do basically you fuck us, we'll fuck you, is what they said. Now, Mr. Barr's insistence about what he had surmised bewildered intelligence officials. But Durham spent his first months looking for any evidence that the origin of the Russia investigation involved an intelligence operation targeting Trump. Durham's team spent long hours combing through CIA's files, but they found no way to support their bullshit allegation. Barr and Durham traveled abroad together to press British and Italian officials. Remember when I said they went to see the Mifsud testimony in Italy? And they went to Britain to try to talk to Christopher Steele? Barr and Durham did that. And they they gleaned nothing. Both allied governments denied they had done any such thing. Top British intelligence officials expressed indignation to their U.S. counterparts about the accusation. Now, Durham and Barr had not yet given up when a new problem arose for them. In early December, Horowitz, the DOJ IG, released his report. And the inspector general did reveal errors and omissions in the Carter Page FISA application and determined that an FBI lawyer had doctored an email, Kleinsmith, in a way that kept one of those problems from coming to light. But the broader findings, the full findings of this report, contradicted Trump's accusations and the rationale for Durham's inquiry. Horowitz found zero evidence that FBI actions were politically motivated. He concluded that the investigation's basis, which was Alexander Downer, an Australian diplomat's tip, that a Trump campaign advisor, Papadopoulos, had seemed to disclose advanced knowledge that Russia would release hacked Democratic emails. That was sufficient to open the investigation. That is what the inspector general found. The week before Horowitz was going to release that report, he and his aides went to Durham's office to go over the report. And Durham actually tried to get Horowitz to drop his finding that the diplomat Alexander Downer's tip was sufficient for the FBI to open its full counterintelligence investigation, arguing that it was enough at most for a preliminary inquiry. But Horowitz didn't change his mind. Durham said, don't print that. Horowitz said, I'm fucking printing that. Are you kidding? And that weekend, Barr and Durham decided to weigh in publicly to shape the narrative on their own terms, kind of like what happened when the Mueller report came out. Minutes before the inspector general's report went online, Barr issued a statement contradicting Horowitz's major finding, declaring that the FBI opened the investigation on the thinnest of suspicions that in Barr's view were insufficient. He would later tell Fox News the investigation began without any basis at all, as if Alexander Downer's tip never happened. Now, Trump also weighed in, telling reporters that details of the inspector general's report were far worse than anything I would have ever imagined, adding, I look forward to the Durham report, which is coming out in the not too distant future. 
It's got its own information, which is this information plus, plus, plus. The Justice Department sent reporters a statement from Durham that clashed with both the Justice Department principles about not discussing open investigations and his personal reputation as a particularly tight-lipped person. He said he disagreed with Horowitz's conclusions about Russia. Durham did. Citing his own access to more information and evidence collected to date, but it was never released. As Durham's inquiry proceeded, he never presented any of that evidence contradicting Horowitz's factual findings about the basis on which the FBI officials opened the probe. And by summer 2020, it was clear the hunt for evidence supporting Barr's hunch about intelligence abuses failed. It totally fucking failed. But he waited until after the 2020 election to publicly concede that there had turned out to be no sign of foreign government activity and the CIA had stayed in its lane after all. On one of Mr. Barr and Mr. Durham's trips to Europe, according to people familiar, Italian officials, while denying any role in setting off the Russia investigation, unexpectedly offered a potential explosive tip linking Donald Trump to certain suspected financial crimes. Barr and Durham decided the tip was too serious and credible to ignore. A tip about Trump financial crimes from Italy. But rather than assign it to another prosecutor, Barr had Durham investigate the matter himself, giving him criminal prosecution powers for the first time, even though the possible wrongdoing by Trump did not fall within his assignment to scrutinize the origins of the Russia inquiry. Durham never filed charges against Trump, and it remains unclear what level of an investigation it was, what steps he took, what he learned, and whether anyone at the White House ever found out. The extraordinary fact that Durham opened a criminal investigation that included scrutinizing Trump has until now remained a secret. But in October 2019, a garbled echo became public. The Times reported that Durham's administrative review of the Russia inquiry had evolved to include a criminal investigation while saying it was not clear what the suspected crime was, citing their own sources. (laughs) The criminal investigation was into Trump. That reminds me, I need to look for, I need to look for a tweet because I said, wouldn't I, I remember saying, wouldn't it be funny if Durham found crimes against Trump? I have to find that. Turns out beans come true. The news reports, however, were all framed around the erroneous assumption the criminal investigation must mean Durham had found evidence of potential crimes by officials involved in the Russia inquiry. Barr, who weighed in publicly about the Durham inquiry at regular intervals in ways that advance a pro-Trump narrative chose not to clarify what was really happening. By the spring and summer of 2020, with Trump's re-election campaign in full swing, Durham's investigation's failure to deliver scalps in time for the election, unquote, began to erode Barr's relationship with Trump. That's what Barr wrote in his memoir. Trump was stoking belief among his supporters that Durham might charge former President Barack Obama and Joe Biden. That proved too much for Mr. Barr who in May 2020 clarified our concern of potential criminality is not focused on them. Even so, in August, Trump lashed out in a Fox interview, asserting that Obama and Biden and top FBI and intelligence officials have been caught in the single biggest political crime in the history of our country. And the only thing stopping charges would be if Barr and Durham wanted to be politically correct, throwing them under the bus. Against that backdrop, Barr and Durham did not shut down their inquiry when the search for intelligence abuses hit a dead end. Dead end. With the inspector general's inquiry complete, they turned to a new rationale, a hunt for a basis to accuse the Clinton campaign of conspiring to defraud the government by manufacturing the suspicions that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia, along with scrutinizing what the FBI and intelligence officials knew about the Clinton campaign actions. Durham also developed an indirect method to impute political bias to law enforcement officials, comparing the Justice Department's aggressive response to suspicious links between Trump and Russia with its more cautious and skeptical reaction to various Clinton-related suspicions. He examined an investigation into the Clinton Foundation finances, in which the FBI's repeated requests for subpoena were denied. He also scrutinized how the FBI gave Clinton a defensive briefing about suspicions that foreign governments might be trying to influence her campaign, but did not inform Trump about suspicions that Russia might be conspiring with people associated with his. During the Russia investigation, The FBI used claims from what turned out to be a dubious source, the Steele dossier, in its botched applications to wiretap Carter Page. It says here a former Trump campaign aide. That was Carter Page. 
The Durham investigation did the same thing, but in a different way. In Durham's case, these dubious sources were memos whose credibility the intelligence community doubted, written by Russian intelligence analysts and discussing purported conversations involving American victims of Russian hacking. The memos were part of a trove provided to the CIA by a Dutch spy agency, which had infiltrated the servers of its Russian counterpart. The memos were said to make demonstrably inconsistent, inaccurate, or exaggerated claims, and some U.S. analysts believe Russia may have deliberately seeded them with disinformation. Mr. Durham wanted to use those memos, which included descriptions of Americans discussing a purported plan by Clinton to attack Trump by linking him to Russian hacking and the release of the 2016 Democratic emails. To pursue a theory, he wanted to use those memos with the Russian DEZA to pursue a theory that the Clinton campaign conspired to frame Trump. And in doing so, Durham sought to use the memos as justification to get access to the private communications of an American citizen. One purported hacking victim identified in the memos was Leonard Bernardo, the executive vice president of the Open Society Foundations, a pro-democracy organization whose Hungarian-born founder, George Soros, had been vilified by the far right. In 2017, the Post reported that Russian memos included a claim that Bernardo and a Democratic member of Congress, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, had discussed how Loretta Lynch had supposedly promised to keep the investigation of the Clinton emails from going too far. But Bernardo and Wasserman Schultz said they had never even met, let alone communicated about Clinton's, Miss Clinton's emails. But Durham set out to prove the memos described a real conversation. He sent out a prosecutor on his team, Andrew DeFilippis, to ask Judge Beryl Howell, the chief judge of the federal district court in D.C., for an order allowing them to seize information about Bernardo's emails. But Judge Howell decided that the Russian memo was too weak a basis to intrude on Bernardo's privacy. Mr. Durham then personally appeared before her and urged her to reconsider, but she ruled against him again. And rather than dropping it, Durham sidestepped Judge Howell's ruling by invoking grand jury power to demand the documents and testimony directly from Soros's foundation and Mr. Bernardo about his emails. It's unclear whether Durham served them with a subpoena or instead threatened to do so if they didn't cooperate. Rather than fighting in court, the foundation and Bernardo quietly complied. But for Mr. Durham, the results appear to have been another dead end. In a statement provided to the Times by the Soros Foundation, Bernardo reiterated he never met or corresponded with Wasserman Schultz. If such a documentation exists, it is made up. As the focus of the Durham investigation shifted, cracks formed inside the team. We talked about Danahy, Ms. Danahy, longtime close colleague, increasingly argued with Durham in front of other prosecutors. Danahy had independent standing as a respected prosecutor. In 2008, Attorney General Mukasey assigned her to investigate whether to charge a senior Bush administration official or officials with crimes related to the scandal over the firing of U.S. attorneys. She decided in 2010 no charges were warranted. Now, Danahy complained to Durham about how Barr kept hinting darkly in public about the direction of their investigation. In April 2020, for example, he suggested to Fox News officials would be prosecuted saying the evidence shows that we are not dealing with just mistakes or sloppiness. There's something far more troubling here. Danahy urged Durham to ask Barr to adhere to Justice Department policy and stop talking about the investigation publicly. But Durham was unwilling to challenge Barr. And the strains grew when Durham used grand jury powers to go after Soros, Bernardo's emails. Danahy opposed that tactic and told colleagues that Durham had taken that step without telling her. And by summer of 2020, with Election Day approaching, Barr pressed Durham to draft a potential interim report on the Clinton campaign and the FBI gullibility or willful blindness or whatever. And on September 10th, 2020, Danahy discovered that other members of the team had written draft reports that Durham had not told her about. Now, Danahy erupted, according to people familiar. She told Durham no report should be issued before the investigation was completed, and especially not right before an election and denounced the draft for taking disputed information at face value. She sent colleagues a memo detailing those concerns, and then she resigned in protest. Two people close to Barr said he pressed for the draft to evaluate what a report on preliminary findings would look like and what evidence would need to be declassified. But they insisted he intended any release to come during the summer or after the November 3rd election, not soon before Election Day. In any case, in late September 2020, about two weeks after Dennehy quit, uh, someone leaked to a Fox business personality that Durham would not issue an interim report 
disappointing Trump supporters hoping for pre-election day bombshells. Stymied by their decision not to issue an interim report, John Ratcliffe, Trump's national intelligence director, tried another way to inject some of the same information into the campaign over the objections of Gina Haspel, CIA director. Ratcliffe declassified nearly a thousand pages of intelligence material before the election for Durham to use. Now, notably in that fight, Barr sided with Haspel on one matter that it is said to be particularly sensitive and it remained classified. But Mr. Ratcliffe also disclosed in a letter to a senator that Russian intelligence analysis claimed that on July 26, 2016, Hillary Clinton had approved a campaign plan to stir up a scandal tying Trump to Russia. That's that Russian disinformation. Ratcliffe used it as the DNI. The letter acknowledged the officials did not know the accuracy of this allegation or the extent to which the Russian intelligence analysis may reflect exaggeration or fabrication, but didn't mention that there were any uh, reasons that suspicions about the Trump campaign were arising in that period, like the diplomat's tip. Mr. Trump's flattery of President Putin, hiring of advisors with links to Russia, financial ties to Russia, his call for Russia to hack Clinton, etc. This disclosure, by the way, infuriated Dutch intelligence officials who had provided the memos under the strictest confidence. Late in the summer of 2021, Durham prepared to indict Michael Sussman, and we know a cybersecurity lawyer who represented Democrats in their dealings with the FBI about Russia's hacking. Two prosecutors on Durham's team, Anthony Scarpelli and Neera Patel, objected. Scarpelli and Patel argued to Durham that the evidence was too thin to charge Sussman, and such a case would not usually be prosecuted. Given the intense scrutiny it would receive, they also warned that an acquittal would undermine public faith in their investigation. When Durham did not change course, Scarpelli quit in protest. Patel left soon after to take a different job. Both declined to comment. Igor Danchenko was also indicted. He told the FBI the dossier exaggerated the credibility of gossip and speculation. Um, Durham charged him with lying. Like I said, he was also acquitted alongside Sussman. Those two failed cases are likely to become Durham's last courtroom acts. Bringing demonstrably weak cases stood in contrast to how we once talked about his prosecutorial philosophy. Delivering the closing arguments at the Danchenko trial, Durham defended his investigation to the jury, denying that his appointment by Barr had been tainted by politics. He asserted that Mueller had concluded there's no evidence of collusion here or conspiracy a formulation that echoed Trump's distortion of the Russia investigation and added, is it the wrong question to ask? Well, then how did we get this started? Respectfully, that's not the case. And the judge interrupted him and said, you should finish up, Mr. Durham. So a lot of bombshell reporting in that story. The only crime, the only legitimate crime that Durham found was one that Trump committed, and he didn't even really investigate it. And then he lobbied the inspector general to change his findings. Wow. All right. With that perfect pivot to my interview with the author of the book about Bill Barr called Hatchet Man, national bestseller, has a new book out called Untouchable. It is our friend, federal and state prosecutor Ellie Honig, and I'll be right back with that interview after this break. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. Honored to be joined today by my friend. First of all, he penned the book Hatchet Man, which was a national bestseller. And now he's got a second book coming out called Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. Please welcome former state and federal prosecutor, Ellie Honig. Hi, Ellie. Hey, Jay. So good to be back with you. I have to say before we begin, can I take a moment to recognize your fans? Because you have this rabid fan base, and I mean that in the best possible sense, that actually reminds me of you. They are smart and they are passionate. And yesterday I was on a flight that was about three hours, and I said, why don't I do one of these ask me anything that people do on Twitter sometimes, right? And so it was hilarious. I got questions about everything from Philly sports to cooking to, you know, actual issues. And someone wrote in, one of your fans, I wish I had remembered the Twitter name, but someone wrote, what is the best podcast for you to do and why is it Daily Beans? <laughs> I said, well, there you go. <laughs> that is exactly your listeners in a nutshell. And I said, I said, why Daily Beans? Because Allison is so sharp and, and interesting. But I said, yep, there you go. There, there's the listeners in a nutshell. 
Awesome. That's so that's so cool. Yeah, they are. They're super amazing, passionate, smart, active, yes. engaged people. So I really appreciate you being here today to talk about this book. Thanks. Because you and I, even though, you know, we're very good friends, we text back and forth all the time. You and I don't always see eye to eye on what the Department right. of Justice is doing. But I think it's important that we talk about uh, because I have always acknowledged there is a two-tier system of justice and powerful people tend to keep getting away with things. And, uh, you know, after Hatchet Man came out, which is such an incredible book, and by the way, Bill Barr's on this whole rehab tour oh, and has been for a while. I know. Why will he sit down with Bill Maher, but not you or not me? <laughs> yeah, I know why. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> because I, I, I tagged you in that thing and I'm like, mm-hmm. if I had been sitting in that interview seat, that would have oh, gone a lot differently. Uh, for sure. But let's talk about this book. What, first of all, what prompted you to write? Because we were all waiting for more uh, another Bill Barr book to come out yeah. because he just kept being super crappy. But tell me, tell us about this book and why this was important for you to write. This book happened entirely organically. And I'll tell you, I'll give you a little inside baseball in the publishing industry here. So HarperCollins is my publisher for both books. The Bill Barr book did, did well enough that two weeks after it published, my editor said to me, what do you want to do next? And for us. And I said, I kind of said what I, I don't know. I mean, I, that was my big thing, what Bill Barr was doing to DOJ. And he said, okay, well, let me ask you this. What question do you get asked the most often? And I, he goes, take a couple of days, get back to me. And I said, oh, I don't need a couple of days. I'll tell you right now, how the hell does he get away with it? Now, the he can vary, but the most common he is Donald John Trump. How the hell does Donald Trump get away with it? And so he said, there it is. I love it. That's your next book. And so what I do in this book is I blend a couple different things. I blend my own experience as a prosecutor, all sorts of my prosecutor mob stories in here, prosecuting the mob, I should be clear. Um, A lot of Donald Trump focus, but also look at Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, various prosecutions of CEOs. Um, Jeffrey Epstein figures prominently into this book. Other, um, the historical look back at what happened in Nixon and Clinton, um, so I blend a lot of things together to try to give people an answer as to how. And really, if I had to boil it down to how, it's really three factors coming together. One, we have a system with laws and features that just inherently favor favorable people. So the system, so to speak, writ large. Number two, your savviest bosses, and I mean mob bosses, but I also mean other types of criminal bosses, and I include Donald Trump very much in this, know how to exploit those vulnerabilities. And number three, I'm quite critical in this book of various prosecutors who I think have not done an effective job or a prompt enough job of addressing those, Merrick Garland being probably the number one uh, subject on that on that last note. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that a lot of us often talk about that through line, right? That historical thread of you know, we didn't prosecute the Confederates. We didn't prosecute, you know, we go all the way back to to then. We didn't prosecute Nixon. We didn't prosecute war crimes after Obama took off. We didn't prosecute Russia. We didn't, you know, and, and now we end up where we're at. Yep. And, you know, I understand the 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 frustration of decades of not holding rich people accountable and powerful people accountable and how that can spin into, well, it's going to happen again. And, you know, your argument is it is happening again. And I'm on the side of, well, let's wait and see because there haven't been any declination decisions yet, but we're still here. So we actually, I think, agree on this. And I think you said something really important. I hope that this book can take that frustration that so many people feel that you feel that I feel and turn at least the frustration into some understanding. How do we get here? How does this happen? I actually agree with you. I still think it's it's certainly possible Merrick Garland indicts Donald Trump, either over Mar-a-Lago or January 6th, although I think those possibilities are becoming more remote, which we can discuss. I think it's quite likely Fonnie Willis, the Fulton DA, will indict Donald Trump and soon. And I say this in the book. I say, by the time you're holding this book in your hands, we might well have seen an indictment of Donald Trump. But I'm critical of both of them in sort of different uh, respects. What's common is I think both of them have taken too long. We are two plus years out now from January 6th and from the effort to steal the election from that call from Trump to Raffensperger. And people say these things take time. Investigations take time. I know. I know. I was a prosecutor for 14 years. There is no reason these investigations should have taken two plus years. Now, why do we care? Is it just that I'm impatient? I am an impatient person, but who cares? What matters is because of this delay, both of them, the Fulton County DA and the United States Justice Department, have made their own jobs 
more difficult as a practical matter. And I know people say, but the evidence is strong. Maybe I think it's I think it's I make the case in here. I have a sample indictment of what what Donald Trump, what it should look like. But I think the passage of time really matters because the far and I know this as a prosecutor, the farther you get away from the events, the less immediate and urgent they seem to a jury. More to the point. Let's say we get an indictment from either one of them tomorrow. When does that case get tried? You don't go right from indictment to trial. You're going to have layer upon layer of appeals, pretrial motion. I mean, 2024 is when you're going to get a trial. Now, Donald Trump's going to be in the middle of primaries in 2024. That's not a legal protection for him, but it's going to be that much harder to stand up in front of a jury and argue that he should be convicted and locked up. Um, and let's keep in mind, it's got to be unanimous. You get one Trump supporter sympathizer on a jury, it's over. I believe I know jurors put aside they're supposed to put aside their beliefs, but let's also be realistic here. Um, and even if you get someone who's not necessarily a Trump worshiper, you could well see a scenario where a reasonable person says, I'm not a huge fan of Trump's. I don't really care which way, you know, care for him much. But I don't like the idea of locking up a person who's a front runner of one of the two major parties or president or a former president. So I think they've harmed themselves by the slow, myopic pace, in particular, Garland. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you see them the same because I, I, you know, I had noted a bit of a difference on Twitter. The people who are upset with the slow pace of Merrick Garland, but cheering on Fonnie Willis. Right, right. They're on the same timeline. When neither of them have indicted him at this point, as you and I are speaking today. Not that they won't, but, you know, they well, then Garland appointed a special counsel. Well, Fonnie Willis appointed a special purpose grand jury. She didn't need to do that. She could go straight to a regular grand jury on that Raffensperger phone call alone. Fonnie Willis didn't even impanel a grand jury until May of 2022. She had the Raffensperger call, as we all did before January 6th. The call is like January 2nd or 3rd, and it became public immediately. So, look, I I do think speed matters. Pace matters here. And, And my concern is just they're undermining their own efforts. Yeah. And and the way that I saw it after I spoke to uh, you and a bunch of other federal prosecutors was my main complaint is where's the urgency? Where are you coming out yeah. on a microphone and saying we need more money right now? I am enlisting 90 something well, U.S. attorneys from around the country to help me with yeah. this prosecution. And now we finally got it in this latest budget reconciliation. But like, where was that feeling yeah. of urgency? This is where the criticism falls on Merrick Garland more than Fonnie Willis. Fonnie Willis is the head of a small office. It's 70 some prosecutors. Mm-hmm. Merrick Garland has effectively unlimited, infinite resources. He has 10,000 plus federal prosecutors in DOJ. There's no reason, budget or not, Merrick Garland, I know it's a massive task. And I do give DOJ credit, not perfectly, but they've done an effective job of going after the Oath Keepers and the other people who stormed the Capitol. They've come under some criticism by judges in some cases, but by and large, I think they've done a good job. Merrick Garland absolutely could have said to each of the 94 U.S. attorney's offices across the country, you each need to assign me two lawyers or, you know, the bigger offices, you each have to give me two lawyers, smaller, you give me one FBI. I need one from each region out in a regional office. I mean, there's no reason they couldn't have done that. And my bigger approach with Garland is not even so much resource based as focus based because Garland, he said this, we start at the ground, we work our way up sometimes, but you don't have to do it that way. A, I don't know that there's ever going to be a line from the guys who smashed windows and all that to the real power sources. B, he could have gone right to the top. And you know who did a good job of that? The January 6th committee with much less powerful investigative resources. Why couldn't DOJ have interviewed Cassidy Hutchinson in April of 2021? They didn't even get to her till after DOJ got to her in the summer of 2022. Why couldn't they have talked to Mark Shore? Why couldn't they have gone into the, you know, Sarah Matthews? All these good faith White House witnesses were utterly unapproached by DOJ until a year and a half in and after, I think, the January 6th committee really forced their hand. And so as I say in the book, A.G., Garland could have gone for the jugular. Instead, he pressed on every single capillary. Oh, that's oh, I like that quote. (laughs) One of my little turns of phrases. Yeah. And, you know, I keep bringing up points like, you know, way back over a year ago, he brought in Wyndham. Then he brought in another guy, uh, yeah. and I can't, I can't remember that guy's name, um, but he's brought in other U.S. attorneys to help him. Yeah, I know some of them. On this case, back in, I know back in spring before the 1-6 committee, he had already gotten and uh, search warrants and received emails from like Kuklowski and Clark and all that. Mm-hmm. Then they focused on Scott Perry and then were able to seize his phone, uh, you know, right around that yeah. time. 
they've been doing work. Uh, of course, we don't hear about it as yeah, much as we hear about yeah. what's happening with Fonnie Willis's. But to to start everything and then answer me this, because this is one of the, the sticking points that I think is is kind of important about the timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like and I don't know this for to be true, but it feels like DOJ had to wait until the committee was done and, and had all their evidence, not necessarily because DOJ wanted the one six committee to do their work for them. But DOJ has to look for consistencies in that testimony. Yeah. Otherwise, you end up with a with a like a Durham Jim Baker right. thing where right. he told the inspector general, Congress and the grand jury three different things. Didn't lie. Not a one thousand one yeah. lie, but inconsistent testimony that could impeach the witnesses. So I feel like DOJ actually really did have to wait for that committee to get done. And of course, the committee was stalled for four months because of Republican shenanigans. Right. So right. I think there's a lot of other things that we have to consider. But the fact remains, Ellie, that. People have been getting away with this, with crimes for decades. And that is why this book is so important to understand how that keeps happening. Talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about the ways in which people like Trump and others delay and obfuscate and obstruct in order to push the timeline out, which makes it worse for Department of Justice. So here's something that I, I hope to do with this book, which is to go beyond the obvious and give the real tactics that these people use. I'll give you one example here, Allison. So we all know that rich people buy themselves mega dream teams of lawyers, right? We remember OJ, Jeffrey Epstein, I actually go into this book, you know, he hired Dershowitz and Ken Starr and all these other former federal prosecutors. And there's actually very good evidence in here that the re- people say, why did Alexander Acosta, who was handling the original Epstein uh, investigation and completely gave it away for an absurd minor state charge. Why did he back down? I actually have amassed what I think is some pretty good evidence in here that he was just afraid of these lawyers. He was just spineless and intimidated by these lawyers. Everyone knows that, though. Here's what's a little more subtle. A very common tactic that powerful CEOs, corporations, Donald Trump, mob bosses use is you pay for other people's lawyers, too. Why do you do that? because it keeps them from cooperating. I start that chapter with a story about a mob case I did. We arrested 24, I think it was, Gambino family members, and we desperately wanted to flip one of them. But I know that in the mob cases, the boss always pays for everyone's lawyers, picks the lawyers and pays for them, picks the lawyers is important, to keep them from flipping. Now, we had one guy who wanted to flip, but he couldn't do it through his lawyer because he knew he would they would tell on him. So he sent his girlfriend on a secret mission who found the FBI agent and said, He wants to flip, but we don't know what to do. And I talk in the book about all the legal. We use something called shadow counsel, um, which I won't Mm -hmm. give it away. But we had to go through this wild legal process to basically break this guy free. And he did end up cooperating. You want another example of that? Cassidy Hutchinson. Cassidy Hutchinson. I was just going to say, Passantino, paid for by the Save America PAC. And the latest round of Jack Smith subpoenas asks specifically about legal fees being paid for by not just the Save America PAC, but the non-existent election defense fund that raised $250 right. million. Dollars. Right. So Stefan Passantino was the lawyer for Cassidy Hutchinson. Not only was she unable to co- felt unable to come clean fully under him, she lied under him at his, according to her, at his urging. And that will, to the point you were making before, AJ, that compromises her as a witness because she, the first time she was ever asked by the committee, did you know anything about Trump wanting to go to the Capitol or getting into a scrape with Secret Service? She said no. And she later admitted that was a lie, but she lied because the pressure she felt from this lawyer being in the room, which I completely understand. I've seen it a thousand times. And here's the kicker, AG. DOJ is just fine with all of this. I did some research. So up until the year 2008, DOJ policy, and by the way, I should say, in corporate type investigations, sometimes people want their lawyers paid for, right? It's expensive. If you're an assistant at a major bank that's getting investigated, you would like usually your lawyer to be paid for, not selected necessarily, but paid for. (laughs) DOJ was just fine with this. Excuse me, DOJ up until 2008 said in a corporate or large scale organizational investigation, if the corporation or the bosses are paying for lawyers for others, you are to count that as a point against the corporation, a point against cooperation. In 2008, though, this is one of these things that happens in government and nobody notices. They issued, DOJ issued a simple memo that said, change in policy, folks, that's fine. We don't hold it against them anymore. And the reason is hilarious. It's like, we believe that corporations share our commitment to transparency. It's like, oh, really, DOJ? You really think, uh, you know, Enron shares your commitment to, to transparency? But the point is, DOJ has subtly changed their policy. And you know what? That's been DOJ policy for 15 years now under both Democratic and Republican administrations, and they have not changed it back. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, releasing the Cassidy Hutchinson transcript from the January 6th committee where she says, I lied, I lied, I lied, I, I lied. Yep. If she you, says it five times. Yep. It's devastating. If you think that's not going to come up against her in court, it, you're, you're you're absolutely out of your mind. You're spot on. Let me just say, I wrote a piece about this saying, I find Cassidy Hutchinson to be highly credible. And I've seen witnesses do exactly what she did, feel like they couldn't give this one piece of really damning information. But you can bet that when, if and when there's ever a day when she's on the stand, the first thing the defense lawyer is going to do is stand up in front of the jury and go, I lied, I lied, I lied, I lied. Those were your words. And she'll go, yeah, yeah. you lied. You committed perjury, didn't you? She did. I'm not her. She wasn't under oath. But, you you know, you you lied to Congress. That's still. A, a, yeah. Yeah. And, and and one other thing I want to ask you about that. This is the one that uh, I've been harping about for a while now is the sweetheart deal that Weisselberg got from the Manhattan District oh, Attorney's God. Office, because I don't. Everyone's like, well, he's going to do this and he's going to do that. And I'm like, he had him dead to rights. He had the org dead to rights and he should have Trump dead to rights. You don't need to make a deal with anybody for anything. Yeah. Everyone should have gotten the maximum sentence here. There's no need to give him 100 days uh, for his testimony in the Trump Organization trial. he the, the Trump Organization trial would have been convicted without his BS testimony. Uh, I don't understand this no. sweetheart deal that he got. It reminded me of the Acosta-Epstein deal. I'm very critical of Cy Vance in this book. Um, not only did Cy Vance botch a, a fairly straightforward fraud case against the Trump kids, Ivanka and Don Jr., where they lied about a, a real estate development, after, by the way, taking a large donation from the Trump lawyers, which he then tried to give back, and then he took another, you know, whole mess. I'm also quite critical of Cy Vance for his Trump investigations. What they tried to do with Weisselberg, he had the right idea, but he botched it. Yes, Weisselberg is the perfect guy you want to try to flip. Yes, you want to pressure him. But then when he doesn't flip, you don't go, okay, we're just kidding. We're going to give you a sweetheart deal. The deal is you only get the deal if you flip. And they gave him this half-assed well, you can testify against the corporation, which, as you know, was probably not even helpful to their case. But it was probably better for the defense, but not against any individual. I don't even know what that is. There's not even a word for that. It's half-assed cooperation, which does not work. And so I think the Manhattan DA, Cy Vance in particular, has really, uh, has, a, has a long history. He botched the Harvey Weinstein case, by the way, as well, the original Harvey Weinstein case. He had Harvey Weinstein dead to rights, gave him a pass only a couple years later after media attention, did he say, oh, actually, I reconsidered. Um, so I, I think he, look, I think he was quite inept and I think he was very much afraid to tangle with powerful people. According to Pomerantz and Dunn, Vance was yeah. cool with indicting Trump and then Bragg See, came in and said, that. let me let me take it. And now now Alvin Bragg is like, hey, Pomerantz, don't put out your book yet. You could damage this mm -hmm. now again re revitalized investigation that I'm doing. And then but then we have the whole I mean, in that in that uh, Trump org indictment, the word federal tax with federal was mentioned like 15, 25 times, I think. Yeah. And and we had, unfortunately, a Trump commissioner of the IRS until just this last November that may have mm -hmm. been preventing any prosecutions from happening. So it's 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 powerful people putting other powerful people in positions to prevent them from being prosecuted. Yeah. So that's a great point. I do want to pick up. So I, I disagree a little bit on Cy Vance. I, I believe, you know, the line in Facebook where the uh, Zuckerberg character goes, if you had invented Facebook, you would have invented Facebook, right? <laughs> to, to the Winklevoss twins. My, my statement to Cy Vance is if you wanted to indict Donald Trump, you would have indicted Donald Trump. You had years to do it. He passed it off to Alvin Bragg. You know, Alvin's a friend of mine. I, you know, disclosure. And clearly he and Pomerantz disagree. What's, in, what's really interesting, though, and this is actually very timely for the book, the DA, you're right, has now, well, we're reopening this, reopening that. They're looking back at the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels again. And I have original reporting, first time in this book, about what happened in the SDNY. Why did they not prosecute Trump? Obviously, while he was president, we know the answer. But why not after? And I have reporting in this book, which is the first time ever. And I will tell you, I have this story from every perspective you could want it. And what I, I, I don't want to totally spoil it, but I will say this. A, DOJ, the main, you know, suits down at DOJ, stepped on the SDNY in its Michael Cohen prosecution because the SDNY had an indictment of Michael Cohen that also gave chapter and verse on Donald Trump. And DOJ main bosses said, no, 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 you need to take all that Trump stuff out of there. And as a result, there was a fight but ultimately, we at the SDNY, as much as we're headstrong, we're not anarchists. And if DOJ overrules us, they overrule us. 
That Michael Cohen indictment, which became an information, was essentially sanitized, Trump sanitized. They basically had to take out all the Trump stuff. And then in January 2021, when Trump left office, I report for the first time in this book that Trump, uh, excuse me, the SDNY met. Do we charge him now? And the answer they came up with, and I detail how they got there, and I don't necessarily agree with it, is no, not worth it. Evidence isn't good enough. Charge isn't serious enough. Various, various reasons. But what's interesting is I also know that all the actual SDNY prosecutors on the case felt that the evidence against Trump was somewhere between close but enough to charge to overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I don't think uh, the new U.S. attorney for SDNY got there until the end of 2021. Right. So early on, this was Audrey Strauss, who was filling in from the prior administration. And I actually tried to figure out if the new U.S. attorney, Damian Williams, who got there in October 2021, has re-reconsidered that um, I did not find any evidence that he has. I asked them for comment. They didn't give me any comment. So I don't know whether he has or not, but I, I've seen no indication that he has reconsidered. Yeah. And and just a quick little note for everybody listening. With regard to the hush money payment, a lot of people are worried about the statute of limitations. But Cuomo yeah. told the statute of limitations during COVID, which means if the actual final payment was made to Cohen in that August 2017 check, the statute of limitations doesn't toll on that hush money payment until this May. So and it's going to be interesting. Let me add, there is a payment that I think was connected to this. There is a check dated late 2018. So if you if that was, in fact, it's one of these Michael Cohen, you know, I forget who signed it or whatever, but it was one of these hush checks. If that's in play, then you can extend it to the end of plus five years, 2023. Yep. All right. Yeah. To, to basically a year from May. Yeah. Right. So we'll see. We'll see what happens in that case. And uh, I I really recommend everybody pick up this book. It's available now for pre-order. Comes out Tuesday. It's yes. called. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> it's it's called Untouchable. How powerful people get away with it. And uh, it's it's a really great explainer. There's breaking news in it. And we look forward to hearing you hearing it and seeing you all over on hits on uh, cable news very soon. So thank you very much. Tell everybody where they can find and follow you. Thanks, A.G. Well, look, I'm the only Ellie Honig. There is not some other Ellie Honig. So E-L-I-E-H-O-N-I-G. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, um, which is fun. I'm in, into, into Instagram now, much to the chagrin of my children. Um, and uh, I'm on CNN and I'll be doing a little bit of they, they They let you do a tour. They let you hit a few other TV spots uh, if you have a book. So I'll be hopping up on MSNBC a couple times and um, can't wait for people to read this. This is a good book for rebels who want to know why they should be rebelling. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Ellie Honig. Thanks. All right, everybody. Like I said, we will save the good news until Dana gets back on Monday. Uh, I hope everyone has a great weekend. I will be traveling. I will be unable to do a bonus episode this week, I think, for the beans. Um, But I'm going to do my best. It might be late. I will do my best, though, but I am traveling this weekend. So we shall see. Uh, There will be a new episode of Jack on Sunday. And I believe... We're going to have an Andrew-only cleanup on aisle 45 bonus for you as well. So we're doing our best to get all the content to you. Thank you for being patrons. We appreciate it. And thank you for everybody for listening. I will be back in your ears Monday with Dana. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>